Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for being able to be here, and we pray that you would give us a hunger in our hearts uh, to follow you and to learn from you and to rejoice in you. So we thank you, and we just pray you'd bless this time we have now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, I'm trying to get in the, at least the outward look of the Christmas spirit here. Um, I always love this time of year because I can wear my Christmas ties or holiday ties, whatever the case may be. And I don't, I, you probably noticed this like I did. The uh, stores, I think in response to COVID and how everything has been locked down, I mean, I thought they were unusually early in getting everything ready for Christmas. Like Walmart, I think, started like right after uh, 4th of July or something, you know. There, there was at least an aisle there where you could get some Christmas stuff if you needed it. And I think that there's sort of a desperateness on people's part to want to get Christmas going. Like uh, we received this letter from our HOA, uh, probably the same, way, same one you got, which told us when we could put our lights up and when we could turn them on, which in our neighborhood, nobody read. Or if they did, they didn't heed it at all because we had several families in our sort of cul-de-sac area that had their lights on way in advance and they were, they were great. I mean, it, it was like cheering everyone up, you know? And so the thing is, is uh, it's kind of fun to see that um, people are desirous of some kind of joy or some kind of relief or some kind of happiness or some kind of hope. And uh, that's sort of what Christmas is about, as we understand it. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is that if you, for me, if I were to sum anything up that is kind of joyous around Christmas, the first impulse I always have are the lights. And I, I remember one time thinking back, what was it that gave me sort of this very hopeful aspect or outlook toward Christmas and the image that comes to mind is as a really little kid, Christmas lights. And I'm thankful that it was one day in my parents' life and marriage that must have been a good day because it kind of maimed me for life because I love the Christmas lights and it's just sort of a joyous thing. So I had the opportunity one time of uh, rewiring a house. And when I came in from the garage, our house up in DeSoto, Texas, I had one switch there. It was the closest one to the door. Well, actually, it wasn't. It was in the light switch, but it, it had like about four or five uh, different switches on it. It was the last one, actually, furthest away from the door. That switch operated one socket, which is exactly where I wanted our Christmas tree to be. So all it did was turn our Christmas tree on one time a year. If anybody, unfortunately, plugged anything else into it, wouldn't work unless you hit that switch. So anyway, the thing is, uh, too, God has given us light. I mean, that was sort of his design. Uh, the earth was void. It was dark and void, and he came in and gave light. And the light originally was from him. It took four days for him to make the sun, moon, and stars and everything. And we know, too, that light, as we understand it, I mean, even... It, in our songs and everything else, light has something to do with hope. Uh, that there's a, a kind of darkness that we feel in our lives. Uh, things don't exactly go the way we'd like. And we need some kind of joy. We need something to break through. And oftentimes we call it light. 
I remember in uh, C.S. Lewis's books, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, one of them called The Horse and His Boy was kind of set in what would be like the Mideast. Uh, and one of the things that they did there was when the people there would talk, they would say, oh, that happened to me, and then the sun became dark in my eyes. Well, how does that happen? Well, you know how it happens, right? We've all felt that. We've all felt hemmed in. We have all been depressed because something has happened, something we weren't expecting, something that maybe we cannot get out of, something that seems to narrow life into a very few choices, and you don't know when you're going to get out of it. And you need some hope. You need some light. You need something that is going to kind of lift you. And God designs that into our lives when we know him and into the Bible. Now, you know what's kind of interesting for me is on one of the earliest days in recorded history, on probably one of the darkest days, the day that Adam and Eve sinned and fell, God gave them light. And he did it this way. He did it this way, which is kind of interesting. As he brings Adam and Eve and the serpent together, he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, and he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. Now, that all explained what he was saying to Eve is, and to all of them, I'm going to bring a person I'm going to bring a descendant from Eve, from Adam and Eve, and he is going to win the day. And so the light that God is bringing in there is prophecy looking forward. Because whatever it was going to look like right where they were is going to be hard to live in. And you, if you know the sto- early story in Genesis, it was very hard to live in. But So what God did was he gave them a prophetic word that was for them a light to look forward and to hope in something. And people often wonder in the Old Testament, well, what did they believe? I mean, if, if faith is based on, or uh, salvation is based on trusting God and, and, and having faith in a promise, what would that promise have looked like? It was that promise to Adam and Eve. Because you realize that before Adam and Eve, there was no recorded history, right? I mean, if the biblical account is true, there was no one before Adam and Eve. And so that information they had right there would have been what they would have passed on to everyone after them. It only makes sense. A Savior is coming. So with prophecy, God gave them a light to look forward. And so you find then, when Eve has her baby, she said, God has given me a man. I think there was hope there. That maybe that would be the one right at the beginning to kind of break the curse. Uh, you get it, it didn't happen, obviously. You get to Noah. When Lemek picks up that little baby, he said, maybe this one will be the one to give us relief. Well, he kind of did, actually. But that wasn't the baby either. And then you go to Abraham, and that's a major promise, Right? Still prophecy, but looking forward. And then you get to David. Again, a huge prophecy, but looking forward to someone who would come from David's line, who would rule forever. And of course, we're at Christmas right now, and we're talking about lights, and we're talking about 
talking about a baby again. But what I want to bring to your attention right here is that it's prophecy that God uses. Now, we often say it's truth. God gives us truth, and truth is the light. And it is in a sense, but that isn't exactly how God did it because he's very expressive in giving us hope looking forward. It is that prophecy that telling what the future will look like, telling us that there is something to hope in, this hope is what will give us peace. This hope right now will give us strength. It will give us encouragement. It will allow us tomorrow to be a different day when we get out of bed because we know that there's purpose in what we do. We know there's a way forward. We understand that He has big things planned. And that is the light He gives. And I think it's, it's kind of interesting that so many churches talk about what God has done for us. And this is great. I mean, what God has done for us, you can live kind of on that, but that isn't where God stopped. And what I find so interesting, and, and obviously it has to do with our passage, because it is an Advent message, because it will be talking about the coming child and all of that, but prophecy is important to God. And so he doesn't want us to neglect it. And one of the verses that um, I've kind of touched on that I really like is in Revelation, you don't have to look there, I might refer to it later, but I'm kind of thinking I won't. In Revelation 19, it says that the martyrs died because of their testimony for Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I think God meant that we should always be looking forward. Because it isn't just His coming, it is the, the world that comes with Him. It is the deliverance that comes with Him. And so as we look at this, one thing I would like you to think about is the idea that God has given us the light of His Word, but His Word is very descriptive, very full of prophecy. Telling us what is going to come, and why that should give us hope, and if that gives us hope, why it will bring us peace. So in our text today, in Isaiah um, chapter 9, a very familiar text, uh, we will look at some things here. One of the things that we're going to be looking at is why these people needed peace. Why in the world would they need peace? What was it about Zebulun and Naphtali that was sort of... Uh, a, someplace that God wanted to point our attention. Then we're going to look at why or how God was going to give them peace. He's going to kind of spell it out there. Kind of in a historical way, but very prophetic in that. And then we're going to see how he delivers that peace. And really and truly, it's sort of, uh, you already know this part of it. I, I kind of say how he's going to deliver the peace, but you know, it's, uh, uh, it's who's going to deliver the peace. So anyway, in Isaiah chapter 9, why did they need peace? It says, there will be no gloom for her, this is verse 1, who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations." So what would have been gloomy for these people? Well, 
as Isaiah is writing right now, the first 36 chapters of Isaiah have to do with the coming assault from Assyria on Judah, particularly on Jerusalem. And what God is doing is he's, he's stirring them up, trying to get them ready for that particular event, that particular day. And Zebulun and Naphtali, they had the distinguishing characteristic being those northern tribes. When trouble came, nine times out of ten it came from the north. It had to come through Zebulun and Naphtali. In fact, when you look at where Damascus is, it's sort of northeast a little bit. And that was the sure way to come. If you were going to come into Judah, if you were going to cut over to um, Tyre and Sidon, you would have come right through there. Uh, on the map, you take uh, Highway 7, and it comes down into 90. John probably knows this. He probably drove those roads. And then from 90, you, you're just a little bit above Capernaum, and then you take 65... Or you can take 70 around. It's like two minutes either way. But the the point is, if you're Assyria, this is where you're coming. And the reason that they're coming there, and we'll kind of see this pretty quickly actually, uh, is because there's a valley. A famous valley in Israel where most of the big battles took place. In fact, when Assyria broke the power of the northern kingdom, when they took it over, it was in a valley called Jezreel. And major battles took place there. And so that's where these people were going to be coming from. Now, you remember in Judah, they haven't gotten that far yet. But Assyria will get that far, and they will come through that way. And so if you're living there, this is not a good place to live. Uh, What you get to look forward to is oppression. What you get Look to look forward to is anxiety and panic and feeling like you're hemmed in and feeling like you have no help. Now, after two years of COVID, don't we feel that way? <laughs> we ought to feel some way, right? I mean, who expected COVID to come? And it's not done yet, apparently. So what do we do with that? We, we kind of sit here and we, we hope. What about things that happen in your life? A lot of bad things have happened to many of us in the last couple of years. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us have had major injuries. Some of us have maybe had reverses in our job. Something that we looked forward to doing. Imagine if you had been a restaurant, somebody, an entrepreneur who was starting a business a year and a half ago. Would that have been a bummer? That was a lot of people. Life basically got upended, and where you went from there, some, of the, some people haven't still recovered from that. So what is that kind of hope? How would God speak to us? Well, for these people here, they needed help. And it says here, In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, these verses are used by Zechariah, the father of um, John the Baptist, to show, and and by Luke, uh, generally, to show that these people had seen a light. And that light was that Jesus lived there. At that time, it was that light. Now, what that meant in their historical situation would be that if there was a deliverance, 
if there was somehow a deliverance from the Assyrians, that would be a great thing. But what was the hope of that happening? Maybe not a whole lot of hope. And here's the thing. Um, we're reading that now and we realize that um, things still haven't gotten set right. Why would that land, even now, still be in any kind of a situation? Would they be in a place where they would need a great light? Well, you remember I mentioned to you that um, there's a valley there, uh, Jezreel. Now, I, again, big battles have happened there, but in that valley, there's a hill. Okay? And the hill is, in, in Hebrew, I guess, I, I, again, I'm not a profi, uh, professional in this, but I, you call it a har. You know, nothing laughable there. It's a har. And that, that hill is Medigo. So it's har Medigo, or har Megiddo or Armageddon. In the Valley of Jezreel, there's a particularly high place at one place in that valley, and that's Armageddon. And if you're reading in, uh, you know, we're, we're getting up to reading in Revelation, we realize there's a major battle that's going to take place there. And so these people, whoever is living up there still, they would desperately need the help that God would promise to them. So, we see that they needed help, and God promises that in the latter time, He will make glorious the way of the sea. That wasn't simply Jesus coming, because they really didn't embrace that. When you look at two of the things that Jesus says, He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. You guys didn't get it. But they will someday. And there's still a light that will be shown in that area of the country. So here's what God then promises for them. Look at verse 2. Uh, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of darkness, upon them a light has shone. Uh, that will come when the Assyrian army is defeated. Uh, when God takes care of them. Uh, in chapter 36 of Isaiah. That will be deliverance for the Israelites who are living in that part. Because basically what God will do in chapter 36 of Isaiah is break the back of the Assyrian army. They become a big police force, but no longer a world or a, a, an emperor empire. They won't make an empire. Just put it that way, Dan. So, they will see a great light. But in the future there will be another light that will shine there. So that's something for them to look forward to. Verse 3, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice with thee as with joy at the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You could kind of say it's almost like he's promising them Christmas somehow. What is it like when you have an abundant harvest and you just your needs are fully met? That's what God's promising them. He says there's going to be light because of the deliverance. There's going to be an abundance. How would there be an abundance there? That will be spelled out too. But that's what God's promising them. In fact, 
uh, there was. In verse 4, it says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This impossibly large army that was coming from Assyria would be broken. What happened in Midian? That's Gideon, right? And guess where the battle with Gideon against the Midianites took place? In the Valley of Jezreel. And we always celebrate the Greek 300, right? I mean, I'm Greek. I like the Greek 300 guys. They, they probably weren't that laudable or anything. But hey, we've got our own 300 in the Bible, right? Because Gideon defeated an army of 120,000 people, men, with 300 guys. Now, albeit they did have torches and, and, and vessels, you know, I mean, what, and horns, right? That'll do it. That'll be the equalizer. God, and see, the people knew this, God had somehow made such a huge victory that it will be just like that for them. He's promising that. It hasn't happened yet, and it's not going to happen for quite a while. But it's something that he's promising. Now, if you have faith in God, you hold on to these promises. And then it says, verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And we stop there. He's promising them in abundance, like if you had a bumper crop. He's promising them that the enemy's things would actually be used to their advantage. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. When the Assyrians came to the door, and see, they don't know that yet. They, they have to hang on to that hope. But what if they knew it was going to happen? Because it, it happened. When God broke the back of the Assyrians, when they um, came before Jerusalem, it says on that night, he took 185,000 lives. So when the Assyrians woke up in the morning, basically they had more corpses than live people. It said that when they marched back to Assyria, a child could count them. That means a pastor from Milwaukee could have counted them too. There were so few people, which meant they had to leave everything that they had looted behind. And see, this has already happened in Israel a couple of times. Asa faced the army of a million men. And when God routed them, it took them forever to clean that up. It was like three or four super Walmarts. What do you do? And that's the same thing that happened with Jehoshaphat. It says it took them days to clean all that up. Wow. And that's exactly what is going to happen when God defeats the Assyrians. They don't know it yet, but God is giving this promise. Now, there is one other thing to think about. In terms of thinking about Revelation, God says there will be an army from the north that will come against Israel right at the middle of the tribulation. They will come at Israel to take Israel's resources and they're probably not going to come down through Jezreel. Uh, I think there's a highway on the other side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, and that's probably the more direct route because it says they will camp out basically by the Black Sea. And with this great threat against Israel, they will be defeated by God. They will be destroyed where they are. 
And there are some prophecies in Ezekiel where it says it will take them seven years. They will burn their hardware, whatever they come down with in their army, they'll be able to burn that for seven years. They're going to come down with some resources to supply their army, although they're wanting to loot Jerusalem. And that will be very fortunate for Jerusalem because it'll be at that point that the Antichrist comes into Jerusalem and, you know, acting all big and bad and uh, basically starts the last three and a half years where the Jews have to run to that region and they will be able to live on those resources. It's something that God repeats over and over again and he's telling these people here who are facing this darkness, who are facing the idea and the reality that Assyria is going to come moving through there again, looting and pillaging and doing everything they do to have hope because this is what he's going to do for them. He's going to give them an abundance. He's going to give them light. He's going to give them um, the enemy's uh, resources. And I guess just stop here and think about that. What does God promise us? See, because the promises are all future. Now, Jesus is coming, but it isn't just Jesus coming again. Paul says that in the ages to come, he will show the immeasurable riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Well, what does that look like? The immeasurable riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Whatever that is, it isn't just we're saved for all eternity. God will be pouring upon us. Paul prays in Ephesians that they would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in us. There will be a party. There will be things poured out. There will be a, an amazing future. It isn't just waiting for deliverance. It is projecting beyond that to all those things that God promises. That is where our strength comes from. That's where our hope comes from. That's where our peace comes from. Because this is just the, the little beginning of life here. And it rages then for all eternity. It is going to be great. And there is that expectation. The expectation that should give us the strength to keep moving forward and keep following. So, prophecy. If you're going to do so, I suppose if you're going to apply this, one of the things you would want to apply is when you go home, not just to turn the Christmas lights on, if you have your tree up already, but to really look at his word. I mean, we're coming into that season again. It's no accident that Revelation is written at the end of the New Testament. It's no... Um, it should be no surprise to us that God promises a special blessing on those who read it. So read it and see what God promises. It's exciting. It'll get you out of your chair. So how is God going to do that? He's made these promises, and how is he going to bring that to pass? And that's where verse 6 comes in. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder... And he should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And from this time forth 
and forevermore in the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So let me just mention a few things in here because this is a very familiar passage. This is the fulfillment of what God said to Adam and Eve. This is the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. This is the fulfillment of what God had covenanted with David. A child would come. But even as I say that, you realize that the things that are said here, and we know it's Jesus, right? Even as I say that, these things have not yet been fulfilled. Now, can you imagine being in a time and place where people wouldn't look at these prophecies. They would spiritualize them because they didn't believe in, say, the millennial kingdom. But the millennial kingdom is going to be great. To think that, he, that Jesus is going to come and he's going to touch earth just as he was, the disciples were told when, they, when he left, right? They're standing looking into heaven and the angels are going, what are you looking into heaven for? He's coming. And then it said they went out and turned the world upside down. They didn't just sit knowing that he's coming back. They were active. And he is coming back and he is going to bring all these things to pass. But what we're even reading here has not happened. So this is exciting. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He has. I mean, we see, we see our politicians and therefore we don't put hope in them. We don't think that they're able to carry the burden. There is no party, there is no nation on earth that will be able to govern the earth and govern people. But Jesus will be able to do it. It will rest upon his shoulders. And what a great person. I mean, we know him. What a great person for that to be. Absolutely trustworthy. Absolutely stable. Absolutely loving absolutely merciful. Wow. Can you imagine what court's going to look like in those days? I mean, there's going to be justice, right? Unless, I mean, you know, unless you're the guy who did the wrong thing, but, but then, you know, there's truth, and if you accept that truth, then you'll be okay, because Jesus is a merciful, wonderful, merciful Savior. The government will be upon his shoulders. And the angel said to Mary, he will be great, he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Wonderful counselor. Imagine having someone who really fully understood and could give you exactly what you need. Somehow I get the idea that he's going to be able to speak to the heart of every person. Mighty God, we understand that one. Everlasting Father is kind of an interesting one, right? Uh, I kind of grew up in a place where we called a lot of people Father, and then I became a believer, and I realized we weren't supposed to call anybody Father, and so why are we calling... And, and it seems to get the Trinity mixed up, but what's interesting is if you look at the words, it gives you the idea of the beginner... Uh, someone who begins a new generation or a new order or a new um, class of people, so to speak. And I think about that, uh, about them calling Jesus the firstborn among many brethren. He is that, uh, 
that initiator. And so even in the Old Testament, that wouldn't be a bad thing for him to be called. It would be like calling Abraham the father of Israel. Okay, the beginner, but certainly not anyone that they would worship. But Jesus is the beginner, uh, the one who began with his resurrection. All of those who will be resurrected after him. And then we get to the Prince of Peace, which was what I'm preaching on. But here's the thing. When you have the light and you have the hope, then you can have the peace. And that is this perpetual peace that we have and can have. Not just resting in what Jesus has done, but that what he's doing every day and he's coming again. That right now he is working to make these things fall together in ways that we don't even see. If we understand God, if we trust God, we know right now he is working. If things are, were to get worse, and they will get worse, he's already working. And so, like Daniel and his buddies, from one catastrophe to the next, they had peace. Because they understood that God was working. Because he had made promises to Israel so that Israel would have to survive. He has made promises to us, and we know that he's going to bring them to fruition. At the end it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And the, uh, the word there is can be zeal, it can be passion, it can be jealousy. In other words, he's going to do it with gusto, with all of his heart. It's not going to be... He's going to do it with complete abandon. This is something that God has been working toward for these many thousands of years to bring to completion... And he's going to do it with zeal. He's going to do it with a passion. He's going to do it with jealousy because there are people who belong to him. And he wants, I'm sure, to get us to that place where he can just uh, pour it all out on us. So, peace? Yeah. But I think that, again, if we want that kind of peace, we need to look closer at the things that he said. You know, I remember one day I was, uh, it was my first job after I became a believer. And I was working at a rental agency, and so I used to have to repair their equipment. Uh-huh. I got news for you. My, my two implements of repair were a screwdriver and a hammer. And so I had something in the vice, in the vice and I was repairing it with a hammer. And uh, as, I'm, as I'm doing it, it was rather monotonous work, and I, but I thought I was fixing it. The thought, the thought occurred to me, just a weird thought, random thought, you know, because early in those days in the chapel, we were always talking about, you know, could it be that cloud or, you know, is Jesus is coming back. That expectation was so cool. And I remember getting the thought of what would happen if I were taken right now as I was repairing this fine piece of whatever that was with the hammer. And you know the first thought that came to me? It was all real and I should have lived like that every day if you knew it was all real what would you do you cannot lose he's coming and your life is before you and he's willing to bless many of the things you put your hand to for him 
and you know it's real. That person you don't want to talk to or that, that situation that you feel so bound in. But man, you're invincible because God is with you and He's giving you His truth and He's giving you His light and you're going to live forever. What would you do? Would you do something different in it? And I think we would. But here's the thing. It is true. He came the first time. There is nothing that can keep him from coming the second time. And he gives light. And he gives hope. And he gives peace. And it's all ours. So when you get home, turn the tree on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You have certainly not left us here on our own. Your word, we, we use the phrase, it's living. The word which is alive, but it's alive in so many ways. It pulses because it, it describes the future. It describes things that you're working at right now. We read things like this and we realize some of these things haven't happened yet. And that should be exciting because they are going to happen. Just like the ones happened in the past and we saw how all that developed, the things that still haven't taken place are still to be. And that's an amazing thing. And your power is, is something that we can't grasp, but it's available to us. All these promises that Jesus even made in the, in the Gospels. And I just pray that this Christmas season, as we think about Jesus coming the first time, we would think about following him right now and being living lights. Because uh, that's what you've made us. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And we go forth not just with the truth, but with the expectation and hope that we're following our Lord who's coming soon and he will make all things right. And we just love you and thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.